to the Weird Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, we'll be taking a look at Weird War Tales number 42. But first, Rich has some retroactive history for you. Retro, retro, retroactive history. The oldest retroactive history yet. But it bothered me when I heard it on an old episode. So here we go. Going way back to episode 17, the Weird War Tales number one reboot from 1997. I did a double flub concerning Brian Azzarello. The Sargerock story he did with Joe Kubert was not called Between a Rock and a Hard Place, but Between Hell and a Hard Place. And he did not write The Losers, but 100 Bullets. I think they were out at the same time and I was collecting both of them. So, eh, my bad. Intel report. Half past danger. A six-issue mini from IDW in 2013. Created by Stephen Mooney. Summer, 1943. And in the midst of a war waged by monsters, Staff Sergeant Tommy Irish Flynn never expected to encounter a real one. But on a remote island in the South Pacific Theater, Flynn and his squad come face to fanged face with creatures long thought dead. As the world falls apart, a unique set of characters come together. An embittered Irishman in a war not his own. A beautiful and enigmatic British agent. A U.S. Marine captain with incredible resilience. Think Captain America level of strength and healing. And a secret and mysterious operative from the land of the rising sun all served up in a stew of piping hot Nazi intrigue. History meets prehistory in this two-fisted race against time in a collection called Dame's Dinosaur's Danger. And now, a sidebar. Once again, doing this bit for the show made me realize I was missing issues in the collection. Somehow I never got issue six ten years ago. And when I researched that matter... I discovered a continuation five-issue half-past danger story arc from 2017 called Dead to Rikes. God damn it. <laughs> Sigh goes to mycomicshop.com and opens wallet. As long as I'm here, let's also get our army at war number five. Only two DC war books to go. And Action Comics 663, where a time-traveling Superman gets trapped in 1943. The story is continued in Superman 54, when the Man of Steel confronts the Holocaust and a Nazi nuclear program, in case anyone wants to know. Yay! But hold the phone, Central. Just like last time, my effort to complete said collection, the Vietnam Zombie Series 68, for those wondering, Came to grief when the U.S. Postal Service lost my damn package. Racken, fracken. But hey, six weeks <laughs> after the order had shipped and the day after I formally gave up on it, it arrived. I could have just walked it here in that time. Max, stop doing that. <laughs> I mean, I'm supposed to have some fun. I mean, just come on. I got to entertain myself somehow. And, 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 you know, beyond the fact that I'm loving the fact that the Intel report was mostly about half past danger and its follow up. One of my favorite things from the past decade or so 
that Rich is is diving into more or less fresh here, which was awesome. Let's take a moment to really emphasize that little point in the Intel report where Rich mentioned he only has two DC war books to go. Can you get hop back on and tell them exactly what you mean by that? That means I have one issue left of the 422 issues of Our Army at War. I've got all the DC start, um, uh, GI combats. I mean, DC picked it up around issue 44, I think. So 44 to like 288, you know, I got all those. I got all the Blitzkriegs. I got all the Star Spangled War stories, which went, you know, 268 issues. I got, you know, the, the uh, all the weird wars, all the all the Captain Storms, all the, like, one issue away from uh, all American Men of War. Sometimes <laughs> I'll have to do the math and figure out some, sometime and figure out just how many DC war books that there are. And this includes, I you know, a lot of, like, like a lot of the, the one shots, like in DC Comics Presents and Brave and the Bold and stuff like that from like the 60s and 70s and the 80s that had, you know, Enemy Ace or Sergeant Rock or Mademoiselle Marie or, or some other DC war book tie-in from this period. So, I've, yeah, I've got like five long boxes in my basement of just DC war books from the 50s to the 80s. So yeah, this this is this is well, I'm a, I'm rapidly approaching the accumulation of a, of a literal thirty year project here. And so the fact that like I said, the fact that I'm like two away, I'll, I'll be honest, it kind of impresses me too. And the fact that it's like essentially you know army our army war number one and uh, all American men of war number one, those those ain't going to be cheap. I don't doubt that for a second, but. <laughs> It's a, it's a moral imperative now. I have to figure out a way to do it. That's why, people, I thought that deserved a little special call out. Rich has been doing this for so long that he almost forgets how epic an accomplishment this is. He's essentially assembling the National Archives of DC War Comics ever published. All of the DC War Comics. All of them. All right? He's two away. And then... I, I don't know. Then the skies turn red and, and the ocean turns into jello. I don't know what happens, well, but I'm here to find out. I, I do. I do have a secondary list of comics that I do have that, you know, like the covers are falling off. Someone cut out a coupon, you know, books that I need to get a better copy of, to be fair. I mean, the um, the first appearance doesn't of Sergeant Rock. It doesn't matter. You got him. That's what counts. The apocalypse is coming. Yeah, well, the first issue of Sergeant Rock was it uh, eighty three? Is I got I had it. So, you know, yay! It's in horrible shape, <laughs> you know, horrible condition. But it's like you got you, you have to pull the trigger when you, when 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 you can find it. And oh, by the way, I got Joe Kubert to sign that issue when he was still around, you know. So yeah, it's in lousy shape, but Joe signed it, so I still win. <laughs> Gee, what a shock that is to me. So with that epic freaking Intel report uh, out of the way, we're going to take a little break here to, to walk that off and, and let that sink in. And we'll play you a promo for another awesome podcast. And when we get back from the break, we'll take a look at the issue at hand. Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. 
We started with the very first issue and our coverage goes all the way through breakdowns. We're going issue by issue in release order tackling two comics per episode, both a Justice League America issue and a Justice League Europe issue. Now along the way we're also taking time out for special episodes covering the quarterly book, interviews with various comic book creators, discussing the plethora of spin-off series, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and more. And when we're all done, we'll wrap up our coverage by looking at the 2003 and 2005 stories formerly known as the Justice League, and I can't believe it's not the Justice League. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Batman. Martian Manhunter. Captain Atom. Fire. Ice. Rocket Red. The Flash. The Elongated Man. Maxwell Lord. Elrond. Power Girl. Renard de Rousse. I mean, Crimson Fox. Guy Gardner. Metamorpho. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast. Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? And we're back. So, as promised before the break, we are going to take a look at Weird War Tales number 42. And as per SOP here on the show, Rich is going to hit you with that cover detail. Art by Joe Kubert. 25 cents. The line of DC superstars Weird War Tales banner with the three soldier heads is along the top cover. Weird War Tales is in yellow on a red sky. A skeletal German World War I pilot gestures towards a banking P-51 Mustang closing in on their tail. A skeletal rear gunner is firing at the Mustang, getting hits on the fuselage. Cover date, October 1975. Date of release, July 17th, 1975. Killjoy, the Mustang has post-war insignia on the fuselage. Comments and commendations. If you angle the cover so the Mustang is flying level towards you, the perspective changes. The canopy is too big and the belly air intake looks like it's right under the prop. Rare Cubert misstep, but the detailed work on the German crew is amazing. Cubert did a bunch of enemy ace work, as we all know, and he's channeling all of that here. The Mustang is obviously an afterthought on his cover, as it should be. I give this high marks. Hey, full bleed Joe Kubert airplane dogfight cover. Woo! The coloring, the depth of field, the layout design, and the acting of the skeletal characters, as you mentioned, with that that gesturing to the rear gunner. It's just, it's so good. The quality of the drawing, it all adds up to a huge smile on my comic reading face. We're off to a good start. The only knock I have is those three dumb heads up top in the banner. Y'all know I don't like them. It's, it, they, they shouldn't be there, but, but they're here for a bit. I'm just going to complain every time, I promise. So, with the cover out of the way, we're going to step into the first full-length story of the issue. Old Soldiers Never Die. Six pages. Script by Jack Olek. Pencils by Ernie Chan. Inks by Ricardo Viamonte. In the midst of a brutal artillery barrage that's pounding his company to pieces, the chaplain is stunned to find the captain praying inside an old monastery behind a pentagram and other dark relics. The captain is praying for something God can't give him, but maybe Satan could. And what better place to try than in a place once used by devil worshippers? 
The chaplain is mortified. You knew about this place and led the company here anyway, although you knew the enemy had it zeroed in? Why? All my life, I've been afraid of growing old. I'm 35. I want my youth back and to survive this cursed war. He'd been trying for years to call up Satan and figured he'd had success here. While your men die waiting for your order to move out, the chaplain exclaims, they'll be slaughtered. I'll see you court-martialed. The captain is dismayed. You'd do that? You'd turn me in? All right, I'll follow you as soon as I pack my things, and the devil curse you. The chaplain runs off as the captain collects his tools of evil, and a cloaked figure appears. You mortals, do you really think you needed those ridiculous objects in order to contact me? At first, the captain thinks the visitor is a monk, but then he sees the stranger's eyes glowing like coals and realizes the truth. Yes, you, the evil one. You know what I want. I'm willing to bargain my soul for you that I guarantee you won't be killed by your enemies. Yes, captain, I know. Not even I can turn back time. I can't make you young again, but I can promise that no enemy will ever harm you and that you'll never grow a day older. Interested? The captain quickly agrees. But there's a catch. There's, there's always a catch. The devil wants a sign of good faith by the captain first. Kill the priest that was just here, and the promise would be kept. The captain is aghast. The padre? No, I can't. I. The devil vanishes, and the captain quickly changes his mind. An eerie voice promises that he'll never grow a day older once the deed is done. Running out to join his unit, half of his men are already dead from the withering fire. The chaplain is pleased to see that the captain had come to his senses as the Americans run right into a German unit. The two sides collide in an open field and hand-to-hand -hand fighting explodes. The captain sees his opportunity into confusion. Nobody would know it was his bullet that killed the Padre. He pulls his 45 and shoots the defenseless man in cold blood. Unable to look at his handiwork, he turns away. One step, two, an explosion, then darkness. The darkness lifts. The devil is standing over the captain, who curses him as he staggers to his feet. Liar! You said no enemy would ever be able to harm me. What happened? No enemy has harmed you, Captain. The landmine you stepped on was American. Okay, fine. At least I'm still alive. You kept that part of the bargain. I never made any such bargain, Captain. Look. The Captain is astounded to see his body lying on the ground before him, and he screams in impotent rage at the devil. All I promised was that you would never grow another day older, and I've kept that promise. You never will. Now, it was ironic because the captain had never given a thought to the saying that old soldiers never die as the devil escorts him away. But there's more to the saying than that. They only fade away. Killjoy, page four, panel one. This is an American infantry company. So why are they firing British weapons, a World War I Lewis gun, and a Bren gun side by side in the foreground. A very unusual gaffe. All right. <laughs> Comments and commendations. I'll start off with a little aside first. I'm a little ashamed that I didn't think of working in shout at the devil into this before right now. So just have that playing in your heads while, while we go on here, people, because I should have made it happen. I'm sorry. So, okay. Now, this is how you kick off a weird war tale story. 
that that opening page, people. Exploding coffin, complete with suddenly airborne skeleton. Blatant Satan worship as the battle rages on. An awesomely gruesome host head panel. Oh, yeah. I will say that the opening page had some low points for me, too, because of course it did. It's me. The big, thick red border around panel two was unnecessary, and the soldier's face in the foreground of that panel looks like it was heavily redrawn or something. On page two, panel one, I take issue with our protagonist wishing for his youth back because he is... (gasps) 35 years old. I mean, screw you, guy. Okay. The, the red border, uh, blah, blah, blah. the red border rears its ugly perimeter again in panel two. And I find it amusing that this guy is not afraid of summoning Satan, but he's apparently afraid of the court martial. On <laughs> page three, panel three, I like the rendering of the ghostly monk's face. And the combo panel at the bottom of the page is is really cool. And it's a well-executed visual as well. It's basically two panels together with no border, marking two moments in time. It's just a great trick. I like seeing stuff like that. On page four, though, we have the appearance of one of my least favorite devices in the comic book medium. The follow the arrow between the panels joint. Between panels one and two, and again between panels two and three. It just shows a lack of confidence in the layout of the page. And in this case, I didn't even think it was even necessary. It's not that hard to follow the flow there. However, in panel four, that dead soldier's face almost looks like it was drawn by Frank Robbins. So you know I like that. And on page seven, the concluding host panel gets really high marks from me. Overall, a predictable, but mostly very well executed tale. And that opening page earns a lot of points in my side. The phrase, old soldiers never die, they just fade away, is credited to a British Army song from World War I and found a lease on life in this country when General Douglas MacArthur used it to conclude his speech to a joint session of Congress on April 19, 1951, after President Harry Truman fired him for insubordination during the Korean War. Anyone reading this story should have seen the ending coming when the devil kept saying, no enemy will ever harm you. Totally predictable. One case of friendly fire coming up. Why do they call it friendly fire when it isn't? It's like civil war, military intelligence, and jumbo shrimp. Somebody stop me! I love the way Olick wrote the devil, mocking the captain for using those ridiculous objects to contact him and interrupting the captain's wishes. Yeah, yeah, eternal youth and the enemy can't kill you. Got it. You and everyone else. Come up with something original. Sheesh. The art, however, struggled a bit. Odd coloring, jumbled panels, the killjoy. Not too sure about the captain's facial hair, either. The red cross on the chaplain's helmet on page one, panel two, almost makes him look like the double warshipper. Page four, panel two, the devil almost looks like Race Bannon is still running around doing his Akizio impression. <coughs> Heathen monkeys. <coughs> and as a quick aside, how in the hell did I not know Tim Matheson was the voice actor for Johnny Quest? But I do like page three, panel three, the close-up of the cloaked devil. And for all of our listeners that are older than 35, which is probably all of our listeners, to the captain, I give a hearty, as do we all. So with that opening story out of the way, I will carry us into the second feature story here. It is called Twice Dead. It's four pages long. Script 
is by our buddy Jack Olick with art by Frank Kiko Redondo. Goes a little something like this. Kind of a 180 degree take on the cover. August 14th, 1944. Royal Air Force Lieutenant Alan Link is flying a Spitfire in a swirling dogfight in the skies over France. He can't shake the Messerschmitt on his tail and is amazed when a World War I Newport fighter, flown by a man that looks like Alan himself, zooms to the rescue. The German sees it too, as the Newport opens fire and hesitates. This gives Link the chance to loop, drop onto the German's tail, and shoot him down. Link then scans the sky for the Newport, but it's gone. Almost as though it had been a ghost ship. Talking to his squadron commander after the mission, Link muses if the mystery pilot could have been his father. He'd been told that he looked exactly like his dad, and they shared the same name. Link's father had been shot down over France in 1917, and the wreck of his plane had never been found. The colonel is understandably doubtful. You believe that he came back from the dead to save your life, even though none of the other pilots saw him. Nonsense. You had a hallucination. Insist otherwise, and I'll have no choice but to ground you as unfit to fly. Link keeps his thoughts to himself as he continues to fly missions. And on January 6th, 1945, he becomes an ace. Which I guess, from the context, I figured was five kills. That's, that's new information to me, but probably not to Rich. So, a second German fighter immediately latches onto his tail. And Link knows he's finished. But again, the mystery Newport appears, firing at the German. And again, Link uses the distraction to break away from the enemy's guns and down the fighter. Link is horrified to see the mystery Newport ablaze, trailing a thick plume of smoke as it goes down. It smashes into a river and sinks underwater. Link doesn't mention the incident in his report, but he didn't forget. And when the war ended... He returned to the spot where the biplane had crashed. Diving into the river, he quickly finds the tattered wreck of the Newport and the skeletal remains of the pilot still resting in the cockpit. It was impossible, of course. The dead don't return. But the tarnished silver identity bracelet on the pilot's bony wrist that reads, Lieutenant Alan Link, might just change your mind. Killjoy! Link has incredible eyesight to be able to see how the Newport pilot, two maneuvering planes back, looks like him from the tiny rearview mirror on top of the windscreen. And while I love Redondo's art, the way he draws roundels on the British aircraft is terrible. Page three, panel three is the worst. The outermost ring should be blue, not red. Moving right into comments and commendations, because I'm kind of doing that already. I've mentioned before being a fan of Redondo's art because of his future stint in Sergeant Rock. His aircraft here are close enough representations I can at least tell what they're supposed to be, but they're not perfect. Again, go back to the Killjoy. For pure craft, my favorite panel is the scenic one on page three, panel one. The colors of the sky providing a great balance to the greens and blues of the ground. I'm also on board with page one, panel three of the looping Spitfire blasting the BF-109. Can I get a ghost ship of two wars call out from Weird War Tales number four? How about a father-son time travel assist from Weird War Tales number 11? Yes, I can! 
shortest story in the book, but solid. Yes, indeed. We we start off here with a very cool host intro panel, but come on, skeletal dude. Spoilers. All right. <laughs> the art throughout the tale is great, in my opinion, as you may have guessed. And on page one, panel three, we have the first, as Rich mentioned, of two nicely executed airborne reversal dogfight maneuvers on Redondo's part. I just really dug both of these. I'm probably going to say it again in a couple of sentences. Page two, panel five, surprised me with a head that looked very much like Gil Kane had popped in for a quick little doodle. And I also like that same character's use of an hallucination, along with his overly dramatic gesturing. It makes his speech pattern just sound a little more old timey. You had an hallucination. Yeah. <laughs> for some reason, I just really dug that whole panel with the dialogue and everything combined. On page three, panel two, we all get to laugh now because he said Heine. And panel two and three gives us another cool, as I said, gotcha reverse dogfight move to gawk at. It's just, those are so well done. And, and they could have been messed up and made confusing by a lesser artist. And they're just perfect and simple and beautiful in this story. On page four, panel three, I felt the caption could have been cut down to just say, two years later, he goes back to the scene or some such. It just rambles on and takes up a lot of real estate to say essentially that. But on panel five, we get a nice, oh, father, for me to say like Sylvester the Cat's forever shamed son. So that's okay. Is it ever mentioned that the down plane is found in France? Do we get that much symmetry here out of the story? I don't know. Either way, it was a fun and, in my opinion, very well drawn tale. So second story is out of the way. I'm going to lead us into the third story here. And uh, it's a title you may be familiar with, and it's a title that you may be familiar with me complaining about. But hold on. This one's called The Day After Doomsday, the year 700 after the bomb. It's eight pages long. Yeah, it's Day After Doomsday, and it's eight pages long. Just keep holding on there, people. Script is by Sheldon Mayer. Art is by Alfredo Alcala. Again. It's a heck of a lineup. So I'll get to the synopsis. It goes like this. Lacey's department store in New York City is the largest and busiest in the world. Most of the men and women filling the store's aisles are boringly average. But there's one shopper that most definitely does not fit in. Everything from his haircut to his footwear is centuries out of place. And that's not even accounting for the long wooden staff he's carrying. He's quick to attract attention from other shoppers who think he's part of a publicity stunt to store security who starts following him. The head of store security is advised and he orders the stranger to be brought in for questioning. But when security approaches the stranger and asks him to come with them, he shouts, nay, I'll not fall prey to you that simply and uses his staff to vault over a rack of clothing into the next aisle. Security intercepts him again and manages to persuade him to come along quietly. In the manager's office, the two men talk. I am Barry of Bleecker Street, the stranger proclaims, and I am not here by my own will. He starts to tell the manager his story, knowing that he probably won't be believed. It began in a time when there were none of those roaring monsters prowling out there. You mean the auto traffic? Next time you'll be trying to tell me you're from the past. Nay, tis from the future I come. 
I stood on that very street down there, and another time! It makes me sad to remember it. Barry's thoughts return to the time from which he came, where enemy troops accost women in the ruins of a destroyed 20th century New York, a medieval-type village lying under the wrecked towers. The mighty emperor of Weehawken sent his hordes across the river Hudson and conquered our island of Manhattan for the third time. The streets were full of arrogant occupation troops who thought there was nothing beyond their grasp. The town was so distasteful to me that I wandered up among the marvelous ruins of the ancients where the air was a bit clearer and the soldiers fewer in number. He whistles as he strides away from the massacre. It was no fun being a homeless veteran of a defeated army. As I hungrily watched a street urchin gnaw at a cold sausage, I wondered idly what life was like way back in our 20th century. For this was the year 700 after the bomb. Might as well eat me last bit of cheese. Blech! Hunger is everywhere. Life must have been beautiful back in the 20th century when we had plenty of everything. I wish. Aye, you wish you'd live then instead of now, eh? <gasps> Where did you come from, hag? I thought I was alone, aye. And alone you'd make a pig of yourself with all that cheese. For a bite of it, I'll grant you your dearest wish. Before Barry can answer the hag, she snatches the cheese out of his hand and swallows it all. Nice move on her part. I, 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 anyway, I'm getting into my comments and commendations here. Barry is furious and grabs the hag, but she insists she's no thief. Kuzartuzam, she exclaims. There, now you'll have your wish. The spell will take a while to work, so be patient. You'll have your wish, and if you don't like it, back it. Puzzled, Barry releases the hag, and she walks off into the woods, Turning, he sees the lad with the sausage and his mouth waters. It's not fair, but it's a mean world. It's at that moment when two occupation troops from Weehawken arrive and confront the lad. <laughs> Do you see what I see? A Manhattan brat with a whole sausage to himself. Disgraceful. He should be taught that conquered people don't eat when the conquering heroes go hungry. Reaching for the food, the lad bites the warrior's hand and the second warrior draws his sword. Barry bursts from the undergrowth with his staff and knocks both the soldiers down with a swift strike. If they got the sausage, I would never get any, he muses. Grab your sausage and run, lad. I'll handle this. Me, the lad exclaims, digging into his pouch. He pulls out a box of matches, lights one, and sets the cloak of both soldiers ablaze. Barry does not understand this mysterious magic, and neither do the two warriors, who run away howling. Stop, devil! Your magic will not help ye when I catch ye! The lad scoops up his sausage and runs into the woods, with Barry in pursuit. Wait for me! Half that sausage is mine! You'll have to catch me for it, the boy replies, but the kid vanishes. Confused, Barry looks around and hears the soldiers coming back. Down here, quick! The lad cries from under a bush. There's a hole under the bush that vanishes into darkness. The security offer breaks into Barry's tail. Next thing you'll tell me, there was a white rabbit walking around saying, I'm light! Nay, you ridicule me, but I speak the truth! Sure you do. 
Now tell me what the hell you were doing in my store. And that's it. The adventures of Barry of Bleecker Street are to be continued in Weird War Tales number 43. It's our first ever tune in next time tale where you're left hanging. And there's no killjoy here that Rich provided. So I'm a charge right in forthwith and forsooth and verily and all that into our comments and commendations. So, okay, give me a second here. An eight page day after doomsday tale with downright excellent art with an honestly entertaining twist in the plot and to be continued. I mean, is this the same feature that we have come to mostly dread? The host panel intro is awesomely drawn, as is most of the story, and I really dug the selection of super 70s hairstyles on display throughout the opening page. At first, I thought DC was just putting Prince Valiant in one of their stories when I caught sight of the protagonist, but I guess it was just the haircut. On pages two to three, Barry promises to crack open some skulls if the guards approach, but then he just goes upstairs with them. Oh well, only got eight pages, I guess. On page three, panel five, we get the twist, and we also get some really great art to boot. Again, I, I just really enjoyed this whole thing, but for a protagonist, Barry is kind of a dick. <laughs> he wanders off away from the pillaging, and worse, no doubt. On page four, panel two, he whines about the hag, Dick, eating his cheese when he was planning to steal that kid's sausage and even persists in that plot after the kid saves his stupid life. As I said, though, the art is fantastic. The story has some real meat on its bones. Insert sausage joke here. So I am actually interested in seeing what happens next. And whether or not this team can make a likable protagonist out of old Barry. Yeah, there's some hard Robin Hood vibes running through this story. Page four, panel four. That's Robin. I think the story's creative team is perfect for a tale such as this, and it meshes perfectly in a surreal post-apocalyptic slash medieval panel five on page three that Max has already mentioned. The mighty emperor of Weehawken sent his hordes against the River Hudson. Just awesome. Alcala's trademark one-eyed grizzly narrator on a splash page, as already mentioned. Welcome edition, as always. Page eight, panel one. Damn Alcala control foliage. But for the mandatory Pixar movie adult humor that the kids in the audience don't get, page six, panel five, grab your sausage and run, lad, I'll handle this. I guess innuendo is another thing that got wiped out 700 years ago. <laughs> I'm curious to see where this goes. I'm I'm really surprised that we held back as much as we did on the sausage humor, but but you know you handled it so well in in your CNC that I decided to just lay lay off because man every few seconds that was mentioned I was I turned into butthead <laughs> just <laughs> so with that, <laughs> yes with with that surprisingly great day after doomsday out of the way we're gonna. Shuffle on over to the APO Weird War Tales letters page, which mostly focuses on Weird War Tales number 37. And since I just yapped for a long time, I'll, I'll relent and let Rich lead this one off. My missive is from frequent contributor to the comic book, Linus Sabalas from Laval, PQ, Canada. Dear Joe, mm -hmm. was that a Weird War Tale or was that a Weird War Tale? 
Issue 37 had everything. I asked for different settings. You gave them. I wanted science fiction. That was included. And it took place in something else I wanted. A giant full-length story. Incredible. Congratulations to Arnold Drake and Leopoldo Duranona. I was a bit disappointed to see only 18 pages, though. Angel responds with, We were more than a bit disappointed to have to go to 18 pages, but in a period of economic contraction for recession or depression or whatever they decide to call it by the time this magazine reaches the stands, some unpleasant measures must be taken. And yeah, I went with this letter because I could not have disagreed with him more because Leopoldo Dianonis art freaking sucked. <laughs> I just had to shake my little finger at Linus Sabalas here and go, hard no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Story wasn't that bad, but that art was terrible. We all remember Max's rant about this one. Yeah, no. Hey, well, don't worry because my letter holds up my end of the flag and makes up for uh, Linus's abundance of praise. This one comes from John Elliott of New York, New York, and it goes like this. Dear Joe, I've come to expect Weird War Tales' finest hour whenever you feature a novel-length story. All four of the novels to date have been impressive stories, well-illustrated and well-packaged. Unfortunately, number 37's The Three Wars of Don Q didn't live up to my expectations. Arnold Drake turned in a script that was below his usual standard. The novel length there he scripted for number 19 was far better. He took the elements that normally make a WWT novel successful, the different settings with single characters binding them together in an occult fashion, and jumbled them in such a fashion as to make the plot unintelligible. A real pity. Leopoldo Duranona's art was very strange and almost had an impressionistic quality. Not the fault the man's obvious talent, but I suspect he'd be better suited to a different medium. That is a very diplomatic way of phrasing things. I, I applaud you, Mr. Elliot. <laughs> As comics, his art cannot cut it. It is simply too confusing. Storytelling was at a minimum. As for Bob Rohde's suggestion about the superhero tie-in, I think he should send it to Murray Boltonoff for possible use in The Brave and the Bold, which is a good solid magazine that combines two genres without any use of continuing characters. And Joe responds and says, we're not planning any superhero guest shots since we do feel that would be contrary to Weird War Tales format and probably contrary to the, witness, uh, to the wishes of our readers as well. But we're going to be trying a few experiments with continuity soon. That is our... Uh, yin-yang, balanced letters page, the positive, the negative, and all that coming together in a cosmic fashion, if I can wax a little Kirby-esque here. And then, having blundered my way through that, I'll move us along to a really fun part of the show this time around. It's uh, our spotlighted ads for the issue. Car in a Bottle by Monogram. Here's the old ship in a bottle trick with a new twist. Now you can build a car in a bottle in just minutes with pop art from Monogram. Amaze your friends with Monogram's bottle models, wild rear engine dragsters inside full-size plastic replicas of familiar Pepsi and 7-Up bottles. They're fun and easy to build because they're snap-tight kits. All the parts just snap together. 
No gluing or painting needed. How does the car get into the bottle? That's a snap too, and it'll be your secret. Mounted on the display stand, your car in a bottle pop art is a conversation piece, a model that will make you proud to say, I built it myself. And it's an animated picture of a, you know, brown uh, brown haired kid with a seven up bottle in one hand a red dragster and a horizontal pepsi bottle on the desk in front of him and like over his shoulder there's like you know the classic bearded ship captain with the you know holding a ship in a bottle you know doing the old you know this is the way it was done back in the day and everything this was a neat ad i i had to do some research on these obviously these kits came out in the mid-70s and were advertised in full-page color ads on the back cover or inside back cover of, obviously, these, these comic books. Originally costing only 4 bucks, I found one on eBay going for 129 bucks overseas. The ad features, like I said, kids and Pepsi and 7-Up bottles, but apparently there's a, a Dr. Pepper bottle kit produced that seems to be a much rarer find. Each kit featured a different color red dragster, red for Pepsi, yellow for 7-Up, green for Dr. Pepper. The kits just snapped together, required no gluing or painting. However, some point, some of the parts apparently were pretty delicate and should have been glued for stability. The first question is, obviously, how does the car fit in a bottle? Looking very closely at photos of the completed item, it appears the bottom of the bottle pops on and off. There are similar knockoffs to these out there today, but these look much cooler. Yeah, I, I saw this ad, and it, it's it's quite frankly the best ad in the comic, but I was like, I got to give this one to Rich, because A, he's the one of us that has actually built some model kits. I mean, I could have built this one when I was a kid, because I stuck to the Snap Together ones, but really, this thing just had Rich written all over it. And I, before I move on to my ad, I loved the drawing for this ad, for this ad too. Like, what for for my twisted mind the kids holding the an intact seven up bottle since i don't know the secret trick and, and an intact dragster and it's just kind of smiling like i'm gonna shove this thing in this bottle like you know like i'm gonna put this dragon just a wham i'm gonna shove it in there like i don't know why but i chuckle every time i look at this thing and it's a great drawing too so that's the best ad so i had to go scrounging for the second best ad and i did find something that suits my particular nerdiness. This thing is like a half quarter page ad. It's called Captain Collector's Comic Library. Hey kids, did you know a 1960 Fantastic Four is now worth $100? Imagine what your comics will be worth in a few years. Start your collection today. Traveling, trading, start a collection. Permanent Binder protects and stores your comics. Holds 18 comics. Uh, read them all without removing. Comics instantly inserted or removed. 18 individual metal holders. Waterproof, ripproof, stainproof, washable. Self-stick contents label. So here you go. We have a little picture up in the, the upper left corner of a yellow binder with some pages fanned out and a little indexing label on, on, the, on the spine where you're going to hold all your comics. So instead of putting your comics in a long box, you're going to shove them in this binder. Now, I saw this ad and I was like, the heck is this? I've never heard anybody keeping their comics this way. And I was like, all right, there's no way that this lasted very long. However, I looked into it and they apparently still sell things like this today. Search comic book binder on Amazon or wherever, and you'll find them pretty quickly. They sound like a bad idea, look like a bad idea, 
and don't seem to really store more than one comic per page. They, they, they say you can put one on both sides, but the reviews are like, yeah, look at this. That's a tight fit for one. So they're an inefficient use of space as well. As far as reading them all without removing them, like our ad promises, sure. If you want to just read the covers, you can't read the insides of these comics when they're crammed in a binder. So, boo. But I, I just had to spotlight this one because I thought it was just some weird flash in the pan craze trying to capitalize on comic collectors' desire to organize things. But then I find out, no, they're still selling this stuff today and people are buying them up. So there you go. That's my ad. That's the issue, people. That's all the contents of Weird War Tales number 42 worth talking about. So we're going to sum it all up in a section we like to call Got Any Last Words? This issue is a win overall. I'm in the habit of withholding judgment on multi-part stories until I've read the whole thing. So I have to bookmark the final grade for now. Good ads, good letters page, good stories. The art of old soldiers never die, drag it down a bit. And twice dead had a few issues too. I struggled with choosing the winner in this one for a while for a variety of reasons. And though I'll give the crown to twice dead, I could present a case to give it to any of the three stories here. Yeah, I think I like this issue a fair bit more. But then again, I'm immune to certain things you notice that that you it brings your marks down a little bit, like the accuracy on the planes and all that. But even with my nitpicks, I really enjoyed this one. As for the winner, again, like you said, I liked every story. But I got to give it to Day After Doomsday. Sure, it's partly because of the surprise factor here. But no one ever said we had to be fair. There we go. That's it. That's the issue handled. Now we're going to move on to our dead letter office where we check in on the socials, media, and all that kind of stuff and see who dropped by to say, hey, and this time around, we had a lot of people to list because, you know, our uh, our JL May episode came out. So all the other people that also did JL May episodes <laughs> came by and liked our posts and stuff. So over on Facebook, we got a visit from A World on Fire, an All-Star Squadron podcast hosted by our buddy Billy Delicious and various other fine people. Tim DeForest of ComicsRadioBlogspot.com stopped by. Dave Marchand, Peter Watson of the Earth 2 podcast, Magazines and Monsters, another Billy Delicious production. And then Aya Voss. I'm hoping I'm saying that right. It's E-I-A-V-O-S. Stop by to say hi. David Steele, also of the Earth 2 podcast, completing the host presence for that show. Luke Giaconetti of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. And Clinton Robinson swung by. He is from Coffee and Comics podcast, which is a great show. Go check it out. All these shows are fantastic. And over on Twitter, where <laughs> for a while I've been saying, why the heck have I brought gone back on Twitter and no one freaking looks at the thing, blah, 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 blah. I got 19 people to rattle off here because we did a crossover, all right? So Diabolu Frank stopped by. He of the Rolled Spine Network of podcasts. Tons of content under Frank's aegis over there. The Bat Pod stopped by. That's at The Bat Pod. And by the way, Diabolu Frank is at Commander Blanks with an X if you want to find him. Mr. Paul Hicks stopped by at reading underscore Hicks. He is the host of Dial Up for Flangers. He does DCOCD and, of course, Waiting for Doom, one of my favorite podcasts ever about the Doom Patrol. 
uh, I stopped by. I'm not sure why I screen captured that. Um, <laughs> I, I went and liked the Weird Warriors post because I'm a cheater. Michael Kirkland stopped by the Warlock Thanos podcast, said, hey, Chris Lydon. David Steele hit us over on Twitter. Dave's Comic Heroes blog gave us a, a like. Long Box of Darkness, hosted by our buddy Herm. Herman Lowe at Dark Long Box stopped by. Liz Ann Oswalt at Oswalt Liz. The Telltale Mind at The Telltale Mind. I like that. That's easy. Ed Moore at Teal Productions, T-E-A-L. And he, he's on a bunch of podcasts too. Dance Fever, spelled F-E-V-R-E. Lords of Order, The Roman Rabbit, tons of stuff. Dr. Bob's Kitchen, now that is K-I-T-S-C-H-E-N, at Dr. underscore Bob, that is one of our buddies, one of the checkered chums from the Checkered Past podcast, stopped by. The Irredeemable Shag, at Once Upon a Geek from the Fire and Water Network, Ward Hill Terry, at Ward Hill Terry, Coffee and Comics, at Coffee Comics BLG, that's Clinton, Doc Strange, the guy I've been mentioning so often here, at Billy D underscore Licious, and Keith G. Baker at KGBUNC on Twitter also stopped by. So there you go. That's, a, that's some dead letter office roll call for you, but we're not done yet. We got three emails to read, okay? And the first one, of course, is from our good buddy Jason Zeller, the founder and sole owner of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award. And he's writing in about, hey, our JL May episode covering Brave and the Bold, number 28, from 2007-ish, 2009-ish. Yeah, series went for a bit. Part of the JL May 2023 crossover. And Jason writes and says, I wanted to say you guys did a great job for this JL May episode. I, I was right away thinking he was going to say, I wanted to say that, but however, but no, okay. He goes on and he says, I have been listening to this epic crossover event the past three the past few years, and it's always so enjoyable. The amazing thing is that an entire series is being covered, 35 issues this time around. The podcast promo of everyone singing gets me laughing so hard every time. And I should mention, this year's promo, the lead voice is our co-host, Rich, who starts the uh, baby shark maddening earworm nonsense of this year's promo. I'm buried somewhere in the mix because yeah, Paul Hicks has uh, a good ear for who doesn't sound terrible. So As you should be, Max. As you should be. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't argue. It, it, it worked out for the best. <laughs> so he goes on saying, and, and speaking on this Brave and the Bold series in general, though I was glad they brought the classic series back, I did not jump on board. However, I did buy the Legion issues and the volume one trade of this series called The Lords of Luck. Issue 28, the one we covered, Firing Line, was a solid issue for me. I have a soft spot for World War II stories, we can relate, and time travel stories in general, so it really worked for me. I could definitely feel Barry's inner conflict of not wanting to kill and how during wartime this was a totally different mindset. I have always known about the Blackhawks, but have not read many comics with them in there. Though their planes always made me think of the 1942 arcade and later Nintendo NES game. <laughs> Both of us, me and Rich, thumbs up on that one. I wonder if I would have felt differently if I read it three times like you, Max. But don't ever do anything like me. It's inadvisable. <laughs> I totally forgot, and the author probably did too, about the whole Spear of Destiny foil. So basically, heroes without superpowers could go to the war theater 
but those with, with powers had to stay back home in the United States so they would not be controlled by Hitler. The panel where Barry woke up in the snow was beautiful and my favorite of the book. You guys are so right. I never tire of hearing that. Most of those German soldiers would have died from the impact of the bricks, but comic book logic, right? I do like the idea of Barry being there for weeks, though it was only one second in the present day. And I wonder if he used any superpowers while there or was just acting as a regular soldier. The conversation between Blackhawk and Flash right before he returned to the present was very well scripted. The idea of, is this war all worth it? And what happens? And how Barry navigated that conversation was nice. Again, great job, guys. Next up, Rich will read a little message from one of our other good buddies here. Tim DeForest saying, hey, I think it was Rich who commented that at least some of the Germans hit by Flash's brick barrage would have been killed. This didn't bother me, though. The story takes place in an adventure comic book universe where people are always getting knocked unconscious without any apparent danger of concussion or brain damage. Also, one would presume that Flash is experienced enough to throw each brick with just enough force to knock out the Germans rather than kill them. Max's criticisms were largely valid, but I still appreciated the attempt to tell a story examining if and when someone is justified in killing. It always made sense for superheroes to have a never-kill rule, since it puts a self-imposed limit on their power and keeps them from going too far. So sticking a superhero in a situation where killing is unavoidable, or even the morally correct thing to do, is an interesting, dramatic situation. But it is indeed spoiled by Blackhawk's childish reaction. It's obvious the writer was trying to hammer home the idea that, This is war! We have to kill! After having been handed an easy victory when some of his men might have otherwise been killed is not something Blackhawk should whine about. And yeah, we, we both kind of agreed on that. It's just like, yeah, Flash did a hell of a lot more to stop that attack with this barrage of bricks than he would have been with his seven shots and his you know, Colt 45. <laughs> Sorry. Yep, and we have a third email this time around, and this comes from uh, someone who's given us a cool reviewer too on Apple Podcast. This is from our buddy Bucky749. And he says, just wondering if any Star Spangled War stories are marked as special missions in the future, mainly issue 110. In case you don't recognize the name, because he, he wrote in with his supposedly real name, if that is your real name, sir. I'm old pal Bucky749. And the reason I bring this up is I managed to pick up a collection of the Silver Age Suicide Squad, a.k.a. Task Force X comics, for $6.99 at Ollie's. Now, Ollie's is a discount store that a lot of you out there who are old comics fans know about. And they often get these big shipments of unsold comics and hardcovers, and you can pick them up for dirt cheap. I have one near me, and every time I go there, I pick up a few things, and I have... Just from going to that store, more stuff in this house than I could read in 20 years if I quit my job right now. And I'm probably going there again this weekend. So anyway, he says, along with a few titles from the same series, he picked up at Ollie. So he's in the same boat as me, obviously. <laughs> and I'd, I'd like to have your thoughts on this version of the title as they remind me of the challengers of the unknown. Hopefully this email gets to you. Yes, it made its way through the front lines and all the way past all the enemy checkpoints and made it to us. Yours truly, Bucky749, a.k.a. the American Samurai, and I promise 
to make war no more. P.S. He adds a postscript. I like that. It's classy in an email to, to resurrect the P.S. I really dig that. So he says, great show and hope for more Road Warriors episodes coming soon. Hey, Terrific Hound's coming up. I could always break my promise and go back. <laughs> I probably will. Let's see. I also listened to the Brave and the Bold episode for JL May, and it was okay. I don't know if he means the episode or if he means the comic, but I'll take it. But neither the Blackhawks or Flash came out well in that story. I think we kind of agree. I think the Blackhawks were better in the Justice League Unlimited episodes they were in. I got to go look those up. I have all the streaming services because, of course, I do. I'm the freaking lunatic and uh that sounds like a fun rewatch and somehow i've forgotten all about him and uh bucky goes on to say also i like the killjoy and the history minute in that episode yeah rich always does an epic job on that stuff but in that one in particular it just kicked out the jam so i always like hearing that those are appreciated because i often try to not read them and hear them for the first time when we record so kudos to both of those features but don't tell Rich I said that he does a good job because he'll get a swelled head. All right. Bucky says, sorry for this being so long. Guess I had more to say than I thought. Hey, write as much as you want, Bucky. And, and give us a few more five-star reviews. You know, vote early, vote often. That's what I do. All right. So Dead Letter Office is closed. The issue's been covered. We talked about ads. We did all the stuff. Oh, wait. We have one more thing to do. That's where... Rich comes in. He's going to hit you with a teaser for the next episode. So I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler alert first. If you go to Terrificon this year, you're going alone because that's during my two weeks playing with uh, West Point cadets for Uncle Sam and hand grenades and all this other stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> the two of us won't be doing that this year. But, hey, the other uh, teaser. Well, so hang on. Well, that means uh, I, I won't have sufficient uh, – inspiration or motivation making me go do something so forget that one people <laughs> we, 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 we had a road warriors, yeah <laughs> we had a road warriors planned last year that that uh that fell through because one of our principals had had a health issue and we're still efforting to see if we can reline that up well you know we're going to withhold names of principals because we want you to be surprised when and if the episode drops so we'll try We'll try. Anyway, whatever I was like. Oh, yeah. The teaser. I know we've left you hanging mid-story this time, and you're all expecting us to pick up where we left off next episode. But to quote the Rolling Stones, you don't always get what you want. Just like back in the day when you were reading this issue off the rack, you're going to have to wait a month to get the answers because, to be fair, we've put this off long enough. Just in time for Halloween, because you literally demanded it. DC Vertigo's Haunted Tank. Mike Stewart gets his wish. The time for the fan-voted special mission from our Intel reports has finally arrived. In times of war, the ghost of Confederate Civil War General Jeb Stewart returns to assist his descendants in battle. But an African-American tank commander insists that the white-on-white -white wraith has got to be in the wrong tank. Because the only Stuart in this tank is himself, Jamal Stewart. This is the first time we've done a mini-series compressed into one show, folks, so it's going to be educational for us to tune in. Hold on to your sausages and run, troops. Who knows what could happen? Until then, such time arrives, this has been the Weird Warriors podcast. We 
have been the Batlin bros. And we promise to make war 